You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Working at MTV gave me an insight into the impact a video can have on the success of an artist. Directors Kevin Godley and Lowell Cream were two of the greatest proponents of their craft. If you've ever seen Herbie Hancock's video for Rocket, then you'll know why I'm saying that. Both of them were originally in the art rock group 10CC, a band whose hits include Donna, Rubber Bullets and the world hit I'm Not In Love. Godley and Cream were the experimental side of 10CC, pioneers of new sounds and techniques. I talked to Kevin Godley about those techniques and his route to success. Now, if you like this podcast, please support it. Follow Linktree, you'll find that in the description, and there you can become a member and get both podcasts the day the first one is released, and help keep this going. But first, here's Kevin Godley, talking about the musical aspirations in his family as he was growing up. My mother's brother had a sort of uh, a ragtime band, and she used to play a little piano. Yeah, so kind of, yeah. My dad wasn't remotely musical. Were they interested in music? Did they listen to music? And what sort of music did they listen to? Because your parents, I mean, I've got, you know, my mother's now passed and uh, she was a war generation, you know, she, she was in the land. Yeah. Um, and, you know, her musical tastes were formed in that era. So that was the sort of music that she listened to. And I obviously yeah. listened to that as well through her. Well, I, I think my father liked opera, light opera, <coughs> was very fond of uh, Bing Crosby, and uh, he thought he could kind of sing like him a bit. But could he? Uh, which, no, not really, <laughs> thinking back. He could hit a note, but um, I no, I mean, it's, it's strange because the, the actual mechanics of playing music in those days were so different now. But luckily, uh, my dad was, um, he, he ran a number of businesses in the centre of Manchester. He sold uh, records, record players, tape recorders, TVs, cameras, and so on and so forth. So he, he, um, he had the latest version of whatever crap equipment was around those days. Um, did that um, fascinate you back then? Yeah, it kind of did because it was a sort of magical cupboard with, um, you know, if you open the cupboard, there was a sort of magical turntable with knobs and things that you could turn. I never dared really mess with them until I was over, yeah, probably about 14 years old because I didn't know how to work them. Um, but it wasn't a very musical family. I mean, as I recall, we didn't actually spend a lot of time listening to music, not really. Now, um, the reason I'm asking this is because there's a, there's a definite drive for experimentation throughout your life, which is, yeah. for me, such a sort of fascinating thing, because you've never, ever seemed to have stood still in your life. And maybe when you have stood still, then you've gone for a change immediately. So I just wondered if you sort of analyse where your drive has come from and where that sort of drive for experimentalism has come from. I think probably more than anything else, it was, it was later on. Um, because my father, you know, like many fathers, was was hopeful that I could go into the family business and become a businessman and manage the various shops that he had in town. 
Uh, and I used to, you know, to be honest, I used to go in on Saturdays to help out sometimes. And I gradually became fascinated with all the different facets of, of what he sold. Um, you know, one of the, he had a music shop um, called Hyam's Harmony House, which we believe in the centre of Manchester, uh, one of many music shops. Um, but in the main shop, it was tape recorders, radios, record players, records and cameras. And just being behind the counter and actually, you know, taking people's cash and, and selling things very badly, I should add. I sort of vaguely got to know what all these devices did. And of course, you know, in those early years, I was listening to things like Radio Luxembourg and, and stuff. And the, everything kind of gradually connected. And I got to, to sort of fiddle with things. I was pretty good at taking things apart, but pretty bad at putting them back together. You know, that, that syndrome. Um, but... Uh, I think really that, that this drive to keep changing an experiment came about after spending a number of years at art college. We, you know, me and Laura Cream, we were both 60s art college kids. And that's where that came from. At that time, there was a, there was a push to keep looking, keep searching. We had a very interesting tutor who whose sort of mo was was different to all the others he would uh, he would run his fine art class in a very strange way um, he would first of all find out find out what you were good at and if you were good at if you were right handed and you were good at painting he would make you paint left handed uh, but using charcoal instead of a brush in other words which sounds really bizarre but what it does, it put, takes you out of your comfort zone and makes you try things that you never really wanted to try because there was no need. But what he was trying to say was, if you try something different, if you keep looking for new ways to apply whatever talent you have, you may come up with something quite extraordinary that you may never have come up with if you'd done it the normal way. And occasionally, one did. Not all the time, but it was something that's kind of stuck with me. Um, and I guess I've always, I've always sort of gone against the situation where there's a predictable outcome, um, if you like. If, I, if I'm writing a song and I can't write music to a brief, I find that very difficult. I, I, I sort of rail against that. Um, because I always like a situation where something is in flux until it becomes something that I didn't know that it would become. Um, that's, that's the excitement for me. Um, it's not like walking across the road with your eyes closed. It's not quite like that, but it's a bit like that. There always has to be a, a, little, bit of, a little bit of jeopardy in there, a little bit of danger, because just going back to... Uh, what Bill Clark said, the, the, the art tutor, there may be something extraordinary just beyond your grasp that you may be able to grasp if you go about it this way. It's amazing. It sounds like, I mean, he installed in a way a philosophy into you, didn't he? It sounds like. Yeah, very much so. Excuse me. I mean, one thing about that type of uh, idea is 
that not only is there nothing without risk, but failure is part of risk. So it also no. means that you have to open yourself up to failure. Is that something that during that period with Bill Clark, during that period at art college, that's where you allowed yourself to start failing in order to succeed? Yeah, although the definition of failure in painting and art is it's a fine line, if, if you know what I mean. You, you're really the only one who knows if you've done something interesting, I think. But he turned it into a game. It was, it was kind of... He had people standing on one leg blindfolded doing stuff, you know. It, it, it was pretty crazy. But I think he did that because he wanted to make the experience fun and not something to be dreaded. Um, yeah, I, you know, failure at art college, there's no such thing. You don't fail at art college. You just make messes or you do something amazing, you know. <laughs> but I guess that depends on what you're studying. I, I eventually ended up studying graphic design, not fine arts. So um, there were disciplines that one had to learn, not that I took much notice of them, but, but yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, that whole period was great. It was a great period. It was also the period of the, the, the first period, or what is termed the first period of the teenager in a lot of ways. Um, you know, that was supposed to be Bill Haley coined the term, and it was uh, in the 50s through to the 60s were the, were the sort of the, the first teenage years. Was there a sense of that you were, as a teenager back then, part of something that was a real movement and something different because it was a it was a, a thing that was an alienation from your parents generation very much so i mean it began earlier it began towards the end of the 50s and the beginning of the 60s with and it, it basically came from america um and that of course was was elvis Presley, uh, an unprecedented situation where somebody was being banned for wiggling his hips on television. And I don't know, there were various youth movements going around at the time. I remember when I was very young, the, they were called Teddy Boys at the time, I think. Um, and they used to stand on the street corners and threaten to beat you up as you went past. <laughs> and that was their job, I think, back then. They looked amazing. Uh, but there was this other group of people, again from America, called the Beat Generation. And those of us who had any kind of art, artistic bent, were kind of drawn to that particular tribe as opposed to the Teds, you know. And, you know, obviously it was pseudo Beats back in those days. We, like I'm wearing shades now, which I should explain. My office is in a conservatory, so it's incredibly bright. So I'm not being posy. But back then we were incredibly posy. We used to go to a coffee bar called the Kona Coffee Bar in Manchester and sit there doing this, you know, and writing poetry. And there was a candle in a Chianti bottle and all that. It was really, yeah, it was really, really pseudo stuff. But we, we, we identified with something, with a creative movement that turned out to be quite important in, in America and gradually spread. But the big 
the big, biggest influence probably that came, and I'm talking about myself and, and all my friends at that time, but mainly Lowell Cream, was the Beatles. Um, and it sounds terribly corny and obvious now, but, but I've been thinking about it a lot. And what they somehow managed to do musically was, was capture the ferocity of the Ted's the physicality of the tense, but wearing a look that was completely reminiscent of the beat generation. And they, they managed to combine both of the main tribes of that particular area, that particular era, sorry. And, and, and it was very, that was a very powerful thing. We weren't conscious of that at the time. And I think that's, that is because they grew up creatively in Hamburg, not in England. Their influences were European as opposed to English more than anything else. You know, the way they looked, the instruments that they played were, you know, they weren't available in the UK at the time. And everything about them, they had their own names. They didn't have stage names. The way they performed, they, they sang and played at the same time. They didn't have a singer. It was quite revolutionary back then. And they made great tunes <laughs> and uh, it was it was it became um, emblematic of that gener generation musically anyway I, I remember when Sgt Pepper album came out and uh, I showed up at college that day and nobody was working all the different departments photography printmaking fine art graphic design photography you know it sculpture They'd all stop work and everybody, students and tutors alike, were pouring over the album sleeve and every department had a different track on. So it was, it was like walking into revolution on the night when you got to college. It was such, um, it was a real door kicking open moment, that was. And How that probably more than that. Sorry, go on. Hey, y'all, it's your girl, Kiki Palmer. I'm proud to introduce to you my new podcast. Baby, this is Kiki Palmer, exclusively on Amazon Music. I'm putting my friends, family, and some of the hottest experts in the hot seat to ask them the questions that have been burning on my mind. What will former child stars be if they weren't actors? It's OnlyFans, only bad. I want to know, so I asked my mama about it. These are the questions that keep me up at night, and I'm letting y'all all in on it. Come kick it with me and my weekly guests as we go down the rabbit hole and dive deep into my mind together. Listen to Baby This Is Kiki Palmer exclusively on Amazon Music. So, how would you define uh, what bound you to Low Cream? Because obviously there was something there that I presume there's, there was a friendship, which was one side of it. But there, there must have been some sort of interest in each other, um, the creative interest in each other that bound you together. Can, have you ever really sort of, you know, looked at that and sort of been able to define it? Well, he played guitar. I mean, in those very early years at art college, we were both trying to play things. I tried guitar. I, tried, I was in a band, terrible vocalist band called Group 17. Uh, trying to play bass on a Hofner Club 50 six-string guitar, and I was crap. Um, and I eventually sort of 
got into drums um, via my neighbour who had a kit of drums and let me try it and I was better than him. Uh, we wanted to be in bands, you know, like, like today kids want to be on YouTube or want to be this, want to be that. That was kind of the thing back then. Um, and we both had aspirations in that, in that direction, but we, we thought very much the same, uh, slightly out of the box. We wanted to make musicals. We had ideas for weird stage shows. And we used to convene at the weekends and come up with sort of wacky ideas. So we were kind of on the same page. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. You mentioned the Beatles and you mentioned that, you know, those, those type of bands in the, in, in the 60s, which everyone tried to emulate. Where, did you initially try to emulate them? And when did the point come where you realised, OK, this isn't working for us, we should do something else? <laughs> It wasn't that clear cut. Yeah, of course we did. I think the first song we wrote was something called The Best Seaside in the World. And actually, I listened to it recently. It wasn't that bad, but it, was, it wasn't great. But yeah, we were, because, because the Beatles kind of defined that ilk and said, this is great music. And we were very young. It's like, okay, well, let's see if we can write something like that. And I think a lot of people did. Um, but the, the, the point of realisation that we weren't the Beatles and we could do something different came much, much later. Um, we'd been in a band called Hotlex briefly, myself and Lon, uh, Eric Stewart. And that's, we were still very much um, enamoured with the Beatles style. The song that was a hit... Well, it wasn't really a song a thing that was a hit from that period it was called Neanderthal Man, which came as a, out of a, a sort of studio experiment and was, wasn't even a song, it was a thing. And that was a hit record. But the rest of the album uh, was called Thinks School Stinks, I think at the time. There were a bunch of songs that were kind of like Beatlish songs meets Simon and Garfunkel songs. There was no... There was no real, there was nothing individualistic about them particularly. That only came about the very beginning of 10CC when we, we'd had a hit record. And we had to come up with an album very, very quickly, as you did in those days. And so we had like three weeks or something ridiculous to both write and record. So we booked ourselves into Strawberry and just got to work. And, and every, anything that we wrote, we recorded. And there wasn't time to sort of sit back and think, subconsciously or consciously, oh, that's, that's all right, but it doesn't sound beatly enough. It doesn't sound like what good music is supposed to be. There was very little sense of, of, of self-critique, if you like which was a great thing because we were working completely off intuition and instinct. And it was only sort of two thirds of the way through the, the process, we, we realized that what we were making didn't sound like anybody else. It's like suddenly we began to notice that, that hang on, that's, that's, 
what the hell is this? Um, so we thought, oh, well, that's probably a good thing. So let's, let's carry on along those lines. So it wasn't a conscious thing at all. And I think that's probably what happens to most people. But initially, they're trying to ape their heroes, which is a natural thing. But something happens, probably different, different ways of reaching the same point for everybody, uh, that, that turns the basic capabilities into something that is very bad. And that's kind of what happened. We became, we became the result of these four people working together in a hurry. How did that actually work? Because it's, it's always, you know, whenever I read or, or watch something about 10CC, there's always the talk of the, the two almost separate entities, you and Lowell on one hand and the other two on the other, and that you're the experimental ones. What yeah. interests me is whenever I look at the, the track listings and I look at who wrote what and so on, it yeah. seems like two, are, sometimes three, but often two are credited and two are not credited, which seems a little bit odd when the contribution between the four is on the whole track. So maybe the question, first question is, how does that work? Who gets a credit on a record? How does that work? And secondly, what was the reality of working together and the contribution of each person? Good question. Who got the credit? You mean under the title, on the single, etc.? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's basically whoever wrote it. Whoever wrote the song. Normally what would happen is we would go off into our, as you quite rightly suggest, two groups, myself and Lowell and Graham and Eric, and we'd write something and then we'd bring it in and offer it up. Um, and nine times out of ten, yeah, that's, that's interesting, let's record it. And, and, and it's, it was more in, should we say, the production and arrangement um, side of turning a, a raw song into a piece of recording material that everybody chipped in. And of course it can change shape a little bit uh, in that process, but they didn't actually change shape that much. All that happened was we found the best way of interpreting a song using all our collective talents. That's how it, that's how it worked. Um, it was interesting. It, it worked the same pretty much for, for who performed it, who sang it. Everybody got a shot uh, to sing the song. And if they weren't good enough, the rest of the band would hold a sign up saying next. And then... Graham would go in and try it if he wasn't good in. Varric would try it. And it became obvious um, who should be singing the song. So it was, it was very democratic because the thing that led the process, which thinking back was an unusual process, was making a great record. That was it. That was all that really mattered. But we kind of went about it in a different way. Most people back then used to record a bunch of backing tracks um, for however many songs they've written, and then gradually work on top of it, add a guitar to this one, guitar on that one, gradually move through the layers. We didn't do that. We worked on one track at a time. And, and, and if we had a sound in mind that worked, we, we, we'd put that sound in with echo as opposed to leaving the echo off. We, we'd make a decision just going back to the Jeopardy thing, 
we like the echo, the echo stays, that will take us to somewhere else. So we were, we were crafting it based on each layer of performance that we added to the track. So we were, we were creating the finished sound of the track while we were making it, as opposed to leaving it to a mix. But it was very democratic. Everybody, everybody, everybody got a chance to do everything, pretty much. I suppose what I'm getting at, I mean, you're saying it's democratic, and what I'm getting at is if you're credited on it, isn't there a sort of sense of ownership? And isn't there also a financial bonus by being credited as a writer when, in fact, for me, the best 10C records are the ones that have the unusual different sound and that may have come not as part of a credit on the track. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, maybe. I mean, some groups do that. I mean, you too do that. Everybody gets the same in year two. Um, but for whatever reason, we didn't. Maybe we were being possessive. I don't know. Everyone was... But I mean, don't forget that, that, that Graham was already a successful songwriter before 10CC came into existence. That was kind of the way it was done back then. You know, if you were the writer, you were the writer. <laughs> That's what everybody else got mechanicals and PPL and all that kind of stuff. But you got the writing share, thank goodness, um, in later years. But, but no, it doesn't have to work that way. It, it's just how it worked for us. Yeah, I'm, I suppose what I'm getting at is there's also like a track like I'm Not In Love. Um, and the initial uh, song, I think it was Graham that came in with the initial song, am I right? That the initial song wasn't really... Was, so no, I think it was that Eric and Graham wrote the song. I don't know who, who started the song, I've no idea. But they wrote the song and we, I know what you're going to say, so <laughs> I think I know what you're going to say. So we recorded it, uh, but we recorded it in such a way that it didn't do the song justice. And it sounded a bit shit. We, we recorded it as a sort of cheesy bossa nova and uh, it didn't work. So we shelved it. We, we were in the early stages of, excuse me, making the original soundtrack album. But we knew the song was good, but we'd just come up with the wrong treatment for it. So we shelved it and moved on with a few to coming back to it later, which we did. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a funny one. And just going back to your early comment with regard to I'm Not In Love, yes, I wish we did all share in that one because, because I, 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 my contribution was to come up with the idea of doing it all with voices. Um, so that's okay. It all kind of balances out in the end. Um, but as these situations often are, the idea of doing it all with voices was essentially, it was, a de it was, it was like out of desperation. And it was like, well, what, what's the most outlandish thing we could do with this? Uh, excuse me. Why don't we try it all in voices that never end? Pause, silence, a beat. Um, so we, we, that's exactly what we did. And, uh, but there was no guarantee that it was going to work. But 
And th this kind of addresses the reason why the chemistry between the four of us worked so well. In a sense, uh, Eric and Graham are a prime example of classic songwriters. Their, their aim has always been to come up with the great song. Um, and that is the target. That is, that is what they're trying to do. Whereas a lot of myself were much looser in that respect. Our job, in a sense, was to fuck it up. Uh, our job was to say, no, but seriously, it's, it's, you know, it's to stand on one leg with a blindfold and come up with something that you're not going to expect. And the two sides complemented each other very well. In that if something was too straight and too obvious, we'd add something that made it go in the other direction. And likewise, if, if we'd come up with something that was too wacky and too out there, they'd apply their talents to just twisting it back a little bit. And I think, I think that's why the, the band was successful um, because it was a combination of both those attitudes, really. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. We weren't huge. No, we weren't huge, massive. I wouldn't say we were massive world fame thrusters. What here's okay, what I remember about fame is uh, both Lola and myself went out and bought cars, as you do when you're about, you know, 25 or whatever it was we were. We bought two white spanking, brand spanking new Lotus Plus 2S cars. And, you know, driving them and proud. And, and I remember I pulled into a local garage, the one I used to go in with my old crap blue Hillman Imp, filled up with petrol, and promptly locked myself out of the car, my keys in. It's as if saying, just watch it, son. <laughs> You're not as big as you think you are. And I was there for about half an hour waiting for someone to show up with this brand spanking new white Lotus Plus 2S with nowhere to hide. <laughs> and it was, it was a slight kick in the nuts to one's ego. And that's what I remember about fame, should we say, or the, the early stirrings of fame. It was uh, something that very quickly said, just don't believe it. It's still you. You've just got a flash card, but you locked yourself out, you dick. And in part two of this podcast, Kevin Godley talks about some of his greatest video work and how he's still on the cutting edge of experimentation with music. Check out the other interviews, support, connect, and tell other people about the podcast if you would. See you in part two. Have a good one. <laughs>